Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Take your Bibles and open them to Mark chapter 5. We are moving quickly through this exposition. We're in chapter 5. It's only taken us almost a year to get there. I was challenged this week um, to preach 20 verses. (laughs) You can tell by the laughter we're not going to get through 20 verses. I I was pretty optimistic, but... um, your pastor, you know, dive in, into the, the Word of God, and it just saturates our minds to think about the greatness of Christ. And so it's, it's okay to have part two, Lord willing, right? Mark chapter 5, the title of today's sermon is Jesus' Power to Convert the Most Unlikely. Let me read the narrative that comprises our study this morning from the inerrant, holy, and righteous Word. The Word of God reads this in verse 1 of Mark 5. It says, They came to the other side of the sea and to the country of the Gerasenes. When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tomb with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in, in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. Constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and gashing himself with stones. Seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying to him, Come out of the man you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, what is your name? And he said to him, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to implore him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. The demons implored him saying, send us into the swine so that we may enter them. Jesus gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean Spirits entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen ran away and reported in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. 
they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed, and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. Those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to implore him to leave their region. As he was getting to the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was imploring him that, that he might accompany him. And he did not let him. But he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had, how he had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Father, we come to your word with a desire to be just that, amazed. What a demonstration of your power to convert one of the most defiled, demon-possessed, evil man. Of course, it speaks about your authority and your sovereignty over even Satan and his minions. It speaks about your salvation and how powerful it is to, to change a man. And so we do stand amazed at how you do your work within the hearts of people, how you convert them, how you save them. So, Father, teach us much as we go through your truth with a desire to be amazed, amazed at our Christ. We pray these things. Be with your servant in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to a text like this, and can I begin by saying just wow? I mean, how awesome is our, our Lord and Savior? This truth coming from our passage this morning gets us all hope. It literally tells and shows us that there is no one and I mean no one who is outside the salvation of the Lord. There is no sin that one can commit where the power and conversion of, sal of the salvation of Jesus Christ can overturn. Yes, our theology tells us it is the Lord that unleashes his salvation in the hearts of those who will be his. But understand this, beloved. His salvation is not a respecter of persons. Jesus is not looking for any goodness in your life in order to, to prime the pump to save your sinful soul. He just shows up, is greeted by the most vile demon-possessed man, and guess what? He redeems him. Jesus converts the man and sets him on a new course. And his powerful conversion of the soul is what changed all of this. As I told you, this was kind of an anxiety-filled week. But yet I remember very much the sweet little soul in Taylor. 
on her one year of graduating to heaven, I'm reminded again and again of how her conversion happened. Which, by the way, beloved, when we think about conversion in somebody's life, to the conversion from sin to Christ, to his forgiveness and grace, from darkness to light, all conversions are not only miraculous, but also shows us the power of Jesus has to convert the soul. Such was the case with Taylor. She was puzzled by those who were in her life. Oh, she had been to church. Her grandparents often took her to church. She even confessed that I've received Jesus. But she noticed something different. She noticed something different in in our lives and, and others who were around her. I remember her sitting on our bed asking Sheree and I, how can she have the joy, the peace, and the hope that we have? She thought she had checked all the boxes, but she realized that she was still missing something. Now listen, when anybody comes into my bedroom, sits on my bed and asks about the hope and joy and peace of Christ, you can tell that's going to be a long night. And so we gladly launch into the gospel. We, we launch into the power of Christ. We talked about Christ being Lord of your life. His desire to, to save your soul. Who better yet for those who are redeemed to have joy, hope, where it doesn't matter what the world does because we are safe and secure in the sovereignty of Christ. She, with tears, prayed. Camp happened that year, and I remember her coming up to me in the midst of a lot of things happening in her life, people investing in her. And she looked at me and said, you know what? I'm not angry anymore. I have the joy of Christ She was a happy soul. You know, by the promise of God, she wouldn't be with us very much longer. But the joy of redemption to receive Christ, oh, by the kindness of God for us to see that and to know that she has ushered in to heaven. Let me just say it this way. Conversion never gets old, beloved. It never gets old. Conversion is the result of God's hand moving in in a sinful heart to bring and draw them to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The very first act of the regenerated sinner's heart is conversion. As God shines the light of, of regeneration into the sinner's heart, he, he opens man's spiritual eyes so that he can see how bankrupt he is in his own sin. And then in turn, the beauty of the gospel, as it is proclaimed and shared, the worthiness of Christ appears in the midst of a dark background of the sinner's heart. And faith happens, and lives are changed for eternity. In Acts 26, in a a 
situation, we see this, of the hand of God moving. It was a reason why I wanted you to go to Acts chapter 9 to see this conversion. Well, Paul refers back to that when he is in front of King Agrippa, where he's giving a defense of his hope and, and sharing Christ to the king. And he recounts what the Lord did to him that great eventful day. Look to the screen. I want you to recount this. This is Acts 26, verse 14 through 18. And it says there, and when he had all, and we had all fallen to the ground, Paul's recounting the salvation. I heard a, a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I, Saul said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up, step, stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you to a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Power, conversion, where, where repentance is followed through faith, they go hand in hand, and it saves a soul. Paul recounted his own conversion where the Lord shows up, converts him for the purpose of being a tool for the Jews and the Gentiles to convert them through the saving power of the gospel message. He would say in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what happens. This transaction of, of the mercy and the grace and the atonement of Christ being displayed within a soul to bring him to the point where he repents and believes. And not only is his life in this world changed, but so is his, is his eternity. This Christ, whom we worship and in awe, is the one who is perfectly suited to forgive our sins and provide, provide the righteousness we need. You understand that, right, beloved? That's why we preach Christ. And we're not ashamed about that. We're not ashamed of the fact of giving you more and more of Jesus. And what is so awesome about the power of Christ's conversion in a redeemed soul is that once saved, when the light bulb turns on, the sinner realizes and is repulsed by his own sin and in turn turns from it and eagerly runs to Christ in faith. That turning from sin and unbelief is the act of repentance. And that eager impulse to run to Christ is faith in the Savior. That act explains to us what happens when a person is converted. They go together. They, in turn, regenerate a person who, who is thus born again. And that, beloved, is what is so much on display for us in our passage. And every time you hear a person, this is what we love about doing baptisms. We don't do yes and no questions for you when it comes to baptism. We want to know, and the people want to hear, about the changing nature of what Christ has done in life. 
testimonies that are on display of, of God's power, of his saving grace. And every time you hear a person's salvation story, if they are truly saved and redeemed by the blood of Christ, you will hear of their repentance. You will hear of their faith. And you will hear of their great Savior, Jesus Christ. And every time we hear that truth being applied to a sinful soul, we can't help but rejoice. Like I say, this is what we have on display in our passage in converting this demon-possessed man. Jesus gives us three conditions, and it's probably best to, to look at it this way. When you look at this narrative, it's best to hang truth upon the fact that this man is in the process of being converted. And I think it's true when we look at these three things that, that they, they fall in line with every conversion. It starts with a hopeless condition. The sinner realizes finally, by the grace of God, that his life is a mess, that he is without hope, that his sin will condemn him. That only leads to the work of Christ in a life where it comes a, a dramatic conversion, where the person is brought out of darkness into light. I mean, when we read this narrative, I hope you saw that, that the people were amazed. They knew who that guy was, fully clothed, sitting, not screaming, not naked, but of right mind. Something had to happen. And that, of course, is the dramatic conversion of only what the gospel does. Now, you and I both would say, you know what, that's a great story, that's a great truth, let's kind of end it there, but that's not where it ends. This is why it's so remarkable. Not only does he save this demon-possessed man who had no hope, screaming from the mountaintops, he says, you know what, I'm going to make you, by the way, this is the first missionary that Jesus sends and he sends him to his own people to proclaim the goodness and preach Christ and what he's done in his life. Commissioned to proclaim the gospel. I think that pictures and falls along with each of our conversions, the fact of being a hopeless sinner that is dramatically converted only to, to, to preach Christ to others, to proclaim him and to point to him. It would serve us well to listen as we study this and, and, and identify, maybe rejoicing, seeing your hopeless state in the midst of this story, in the midst of this truth. But yet, for those who are outside of Christ, I, I want you, Lord willing, to listen in to the reality of what God can do to the sinner. And by the way, the same power is just not enclosed in this holy inspired book. It continues to infiltrate people's lives even today. That's why I want you to draw in and, and, and understand and take a look at this great Savior and how he, he goes about saving what would probably be the most unredeemable person that we would think of. So let us look at this with the seriousness of, of eternal life for the truly converted and unfortunately for those who are not, eternal damnation for the one who's not. 
We first see this, verses 1 through 5, is pretty much setting up the scene, but it also gives the condition of the man. It's hopeless. Look again at verse 1 with me. Scripture says, they, that of course would be the disciples, Jesus, some faithful followers, came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. Now remember, we just got done with with Mark chapter 4. And what happened there sets up the story for us in Mark chapter 5. Remember when, when we last left Jesus and his disciples and his many followers, they were on the Sea of Galilee. They were sailing to the other side. He got done teaching in parables. He's exhausted. He's sleeping on the boat. And all of a sudden, a massive storm arose. Mark calls it a megastorm, something that is, was just overwhelming, that it even frightened experienced fishermen, the disciples. We saw there that the boat was taken on water, and we noted, where was Jesus in the midst of all this? He was sleeping. The storm became so violent that the disciples feared for their lives, the scripture tells us. They wake Jesus. He gets up. He rebukes the storm. He calms it. He tells it to be still, to be hushed. And the disciples then turn their fear from being afraid of the storm to a reverential fear of who is this man? Who, and that's exactly where you end in verse 41 with this question, but by the way, wasn't answered according to the text. They asked, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And then we pick up verse 1, Mark 5. Now, what's remarkable about this? Mark doesn't leave us hanging. What's, what's, what's amazing about this is that even in his unredeemed state, the demon answers clearly for us, who is this man that even the sea obey him? The disciples were pondering and seeing the hand of God on display. His deity in, was on full display, and they were more frightened than the sea could ever do f- to them. And then, like I said, the chapter ends. No response, no answer. All that sets the context for what we have in Mark chapter 5. So here we are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They come ashore. The sea was no doubt calm, which I think the text doesn't actually say this, but you've got to imagine if there was no wind, they had to roll themselves to the shore. They had to get there. Now it's important to understand where Jesus and his disciples have just landed. This is the country of the Gadarenes. By the way, this was Gentile territory. And this is important. Why? Because Jesus was what? A Jewish Messiah, who, by the way, had called Jewish disciples. And they were landing in enemy territory, so to speak. I mean, I think we can understand this. If you ever played sports, if you ever were engaged in athletics and you were the visiting team, how well did they welcome you? This is where we pick up Mark 
chapter 5, verse 1. Verse 2 reads, it says, When he got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now, let's stop there. Make, look, at, look at the text. Make some observation. Notice who gets out of the boat. What does it say there? One personal pronoun. Jesus. He got out of the boat. Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly what was going on with the disciples. I think, in light of everything that, that we're going to look at here just shortly about this Gentile land, it's safe to say that maybe they stayed in the boat. But the text tells us that Jesus got out of the boat, and he was greeted, Mark says, immediately, a favorite word of Mark, a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Now, we'd have to say that this is a divine appointment, right? God is solely in control of everything that he's doing. He knows that that he's going to to encounter this demon-possessed man. He's heading to the other side. There it is, Jesus and the unclean spirit, they come together. And the beginning of verse 3 tells us that this man came from the dwelling among the tombs. Now, Mark has given us some, some, some important markers to understand it and kind of set in the story for us. And why is this context so important? Well, for one, if you think about Jews and all the Levitical and, and Deuteronomic and all these laws that, that, that they were called to obey so that they could be clean, all these were being assaulted as they approach this land. As you know, as you read Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those books are packed with laws, rules, procedures for dealing with a person who is unclean. And if that wasn't enough, not only did you have the word of God pressing upon the people to be set apart, to be somebody different, to be clean, you have the rabbis who come along and they add to the truth. They have a big book to this day, a, a book called the Talmud, that are laws upon the laws of the scriptures. In essence, they put a heavy burden on the Jew to watch out where they went and what they ate. I'll give you a little example of that. In Numbers 19, verse 11 and 12, look at the screen. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. You can understand what God is doing here. He is, he is calling his people to be set apart, to be righteous, to be somebody who, who, who is other, so as to receive him, somebody who was clean, And so if anyone who touches a dead body, they became unclean for seven days and they needed to wash and purify themselves on the third and the seventh day in order to be clean. If they did not, they remained unclean. And if that wasn't enough, the rabbis show up, right? And they started adding to God's provision. In the Talmud, it speaks about that not only touching a dead body, makes you unclean, but the ground on which the body lays around, if you touch foot by a dead body, you are unclean. If you touch a bush, 
that the body touched, you are unclean. And then they also added this, that if you ever went to a cemetery and touched a gravestone, you need seven days of purification. And so you can start to get an understanding of why the disciples most likely stayed in the boat. They saw this demon-possessed man in Gentile terry coming from the cemetery, and all they can think of in their mind is that he's unclean. He's unclean. And so, verse 2, the text says, a man immediately showed up to greet Jesus. Now, if you read the accounts in Mark and Luke, by the way, I don't want you to get confused. Matthew, in his recounting of this story, says that there were two men. There's no problem here. Most likely, there was probably a a slew of demon-possessed men at this cemetery. It was their hangout. It was their place where, where they would go. They, of course, were no likely, they were not welcome into the city. And so they went to where the dead were. What's interesting about Mark's account and why we don't have a problem with this is that Mark, he deals with the leader of this group. He deals with the one who had a legion in his soul. Mark says in verse 2, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. An unclean spirit would be a demon. Some demon possessing him. He was considered unclean because he lived among the tombs, the cemetery, like we noted. He no doubt had touched the gravestones around the tombs, which were really not graves in the ground. They were caves, stones over the entrance. But there's more. He's living in Gentile city where the Jews saw the Gentiles as being unclean. And if that wasn't enough, Who was there? What kind of animals were there? Pigs, pork. Leviticus 11.7 tells us that the pig is unclean. It says there in the pig, for though it divides the hoof, thus making a split hoof, it does not chew cud. It is unclean to you. I mean, this man was so defiled in so many ways. He had an unclean spirit, most likely unclean from his his living days, his choices. He had an unclean living arrangement, living by the tomb. He was unclean, no doubt, associating himself with pigs. He was unclean by the Gentiles, by, by even being in Gentile land. I mean, this man... You wouldn't expect the Son of the Most High, the most righteous God of all, to be in front of him. The next verses start to describe the man and his condition. And this is where this begins to get very difficult to absorb when you think about the interaction of what Mark is explaining here. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 said, and he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. The indication was that they tried to to tie him with ropes to subdue him. No doubt, we only bind 
people because what? They are a threat to us, right? When you think about our police officers today, they carry handcuffs and they do what? They usually cuff somebody so as to subdue the situation and to, to kind of settle things out. Scripture says no one was able to bind him. Like I said, that's usually with rope. And then they adds even with a chain. So they even reverted to a chain. The people were at their wits' end on how to keep this guy in check. Verse 4 says, because he had often been bound with shackles, even shackles and chains, the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken into pieces, and no one was, was strong enough to subdue him. That Greek word for subdue here means to overcome something wild. I mean, this was a wild beast of a man. No one was able to subdue him with the ropes or with the chains or with the shackles. This no doubt speaks about a supernatural strength, being deemed possessed, be able to, to break chains, not of his own human strength, but because of the, the demon possession. It gets worse in verse 5. Constantly. In the Greek, constantly, ever doing something here. Night and day he was screaming among the tombs in the mountains and gassing himself with stones. This was never ending. He is screaming from the top of his lungs. He is, he is in agony. He is tormented. In the end of verse 5, it says, and gashing himself with stones. And you've got to ask yourself, why? Why is he gashing himself, cutting himself with these stones? According to history, ancient near history at this time, it was common practice to think that you could literally cut yourself so as to release the demon that's inside of you. He was trying to free his soul from the torment of all these demons. He wanted relief. And so get this picture. Here is the man who was possessed by an unclean spirit who was living among the tombs, which tells us that he didn't have the niceties of living in home. He had been roped, chained, and shackled. He screamed constantly, most likely from the, from the torment of the demons that who were putting him through. And so he resorted to cutting himself so to think the demons would leave him. Mark is showing us something here by setting up this narrative with all this detail. He's showing us that this is probably most likely the, the, the most unlikely person to receive the kindness and the grace and the mercy and the love from Christ. He most likely was a person who, by the way, next week we would see whom the Lord would implore and employ to, to, to be sent out as a missionary. This man was in definitely a hopeless condition. He had everything going against him until Jesus shows up. Now it's tough. 
pray that the Lord gives us breath that we can come back to the story. But it, this, we've got to stop here just in light of time and where we're at. But I don't want you to leave without some thoughts here. The argument can be made, when we think about how hopeless this man was, the condition in which he found himself, Luke records that he was even naked, which commentaries point to the fact that if he was naked, it speaks about his sexual perversion. But the argument can be made that if a man like this can be saved, a man who was defiled, a man who was unclean, if a man like this can be saved, there is hope for any sinner to be saved by the power and blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to me here. And this, this is what excites me about the text. None of you, none of your family, none of your friends is beyond the reach of Christ's grace and mercy. Say amen to that. For that matter, all of us, before Christ saved us, were defiled much like this man in some certain way. We know that to be true. Romans 3.23 tells us, for all, and by the way, we find ourselves in that all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Before that verse, Paul says, In Romans 3.10 and following, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the sinner's condition. We were all born inheriting a sinful state, a depraved state. So we can identify with these first five verses and, and we see ourselves when we were outside of Christ or even if you're here this morning outside of Christ, you've got to see yourself in a position of being hopeless. And then the Lord shows up. I mean, this is such a, a powerful narrative. You think about what, what God says to him. and I mean, you just look at verse 6. He runs up to him. He bows down before him. He identifies him as the most high God. And by the way, I think it's kind of interesting to me. Verse, in verse 7, he tells Jesus, do not torment me. What was he doing to this man? Day and night tormenting his soul. And he's asking for mercy. Though he doesn't deserve it. And as we will see, the Lord steps in, dramatically saves his life, and then commissions him to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. He converts his soul. I mean, Jesus, 
the deciding factor in the changed nature of this man to change him into somebody who is a new creature, removing him out of the darkness and being possessed by demons is only Jesus. I don't want you to leave here without any hope. Listen to me. Jesus still saves. He still redeems. He converts sinners such like this man who were destined to hell, and he, he puts them on a path towards eternal life. And if you're outside of Christ, the most hopeless condition you can be is, is not, in, not in Jesus, not in Christ. And so you, if that is you outside of Christ, living on your own without any direction, and more importantly, without any hope, your only solution for your condition, and for that matter, anyone's condition, is Jesus Christ. Listen, the simple calls for you to come to Christ. We make no ashamed of that truth because we understand the power of what it does to a saved soul. I think of John, and I'll end with this, John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved, the, listen to these words, look at the screen, for God so loved the world. How did he love the world? That he gave his only begotten son, he gave the Messiah who is fully human and fully God that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved. Was it say there? Through him. You must come to Christ in order to be saved. And the question you've got to ask yourself, will you be? Will you be saved through him? Will you submit your soul to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Listen, you're not going to want to miss next week, Lord willing. I mean, this story gets better and better and better. I mean, it's just remarkable. And yes, we will get through the rest of the verses. Jesus is our Savior. He's our God. He is the King. And let us pray to Him now. Father, we thank You for the morning. A simple narrative that paints a bleak picture. Oh, the helplessness of this man. Everything going against him. He's a slave to his own sin. He, he desires his own things. And in the end, it placed him into a cemetery. Possessed by not just one demon, but many demons as we will see. All would seem lost. Townspeople couldn't even subdue him. If anything, he's just biding his time until his soul is judged and tormented forever in hell. And then, 
Jesus shows up. And he receives this man in his deity and who he is as Christ, as Lord. And what he does is just flat out remarkable. Not only does he remove the demons from this man, but he saves and converts the soul and calls him to be a proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, we see ourselves in that, in that narrative, in that story. We, we understand exactly, though the situations might have been different, we see ourselves dead in our sins and trespasses. And then Jesus shows up, proclaimed, shared, studied, opening the scriptures, finding Christ, and he saves us and transfers us from darkness to light. That is the power of the gospel. That is the power of the good news of Jesus Christ that he saves, redeems, and changes people's lives. Not just in this world, but for eternity. Oh, may we marvel at the greatness of Christ. May we behold his beauty in so many ways. May it be on our our lips as we go from this place, rejoicing in the goodness and kindness of our Savior as we even recount our own salvations. But Lord, I'm also praying for the one that today may be their day. Today may be their, their day in which they confess, repent of their sins, and turn to Christ who is Savior and Lord. Draw them to your truth. Draw them to you. You do the rest. Save them. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.